And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Uh, coming up a little later in the hour, sports writer Tim Brown and his book, The Tau of the Backup Catcher, a look at the interesting role that backup catchers play on Major League Baseball teams. And one backup catcher in particular who uh, had a brief moment of glory uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers back in their glorious season of 2018. That's coming up a little later in the hour. First, we tackle the topic of hazing for the next few minutes, a topic which has been in the news recently because of headlines generated by the athletic department at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, and a controversy surrounding some outrageous hazing incidents involving the football team, and many of those incidents apparently occurring right up here uh, in what they call Camp Kenosha. And it has resulted in firing and uh, renewed discussion about this persistent problem of hazing in athletic uh, uh, arenas in, in various teams at various levels. I thought it would be interesting to get the perspective of Ryan Kane, who is the athletic director at Carthage College. And Carthage, like any other uh, school of, of, of higher learning, is by no means immune to this phenomenon. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of get a, an idea from somebody directly involved in this field what it is like to contend with this reality and, uh, and perhaps th things that we can do to perhaps uh, further discourage this, uh, this practice. Ryan Kane, uh, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. I'm glad to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you uh, making time for this. I First of all, I want to clarify for everybody, you've not been athletic director at Carthage very long. In fact, remind us exactly how long. I'm into month uh, four now. Yeah, oh, okay. completed months here, so I'm right. really enjoying my time. But Exactly. You know, 20 years experience in higher education and college athletics, so yeah, sure. no stranger to the topic of conversation. Right, absolutely. And so there's, I'm sure, little of any thing that we will be talking about that directly relates to, to, to Carthage itself, but in a more general way, uh, we can talk about hazing. Remind me, too, is it, do I remember correctly that golf was your primary sport I'm, in terms of your own athletic career? No, I was a two-sport athlete. You could probably tell, uh, you know, if your listeners could see me, I was a, you know, dominant two-sport athlete. Did golf and basketball. Oh, basketball. Very, very grueling sports. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it was all about, it was all about accuracy for me. It was about, you know, Putting a round ball into a hole, I was, I was, I was trying to be very, very proficient at that. Very good. I only brought up the golf thing because I was thinking, uh, I, I, I could be wrong, but we, we don't hear about terrible incidents of hazing involving golf teams, uh, but, but maybe they happen even there. But certainly, we hear a lot about it when it comes to sports like, like football and basketball and baseball and and so on. I'm just curious in your own life as an athlete and then a coach and also administrator, how much sort of face-to-face -face encounter with hazing have you have you yourself experienced? Well, I think it's interesting. I, I think that uh, you know hazing itself, as it's defined, can be as as, as simple as you know uh, having someone carry your bag for you, right? Or Making them take your tray at, at lunch period to the to the um, where the to the dishwasher, you know. Um, so I mean, in, in its true definition, that that could be considered hazing. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think uh, hazing uh, is something that you know I think we've we've all been probably subject to in some ways. 
Um, what we try to avoid is those severe cases of hazing, which you've recently uh, referring to and down in, in Evanston and, and where they where they're, you know, demeaning and violent and sexual in nature. Like those are the types of hazing incidences that, you know, draw the headlines. But, but quite honestly, like, you know, hazing, as you as you know, has existed for, for quite a long period of time. Right. Um, and it and can so take and I, it can take I, fairly modest or mild uh, yeah, levels. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think for me, uh, I've really only been privy to personally more mild incidences of hazing. Um, but no, certainly contextually and, and, and you know, colleagues that have had to deal with much more severe cases where, you know, um, to the point where there, you know, there was um, criminal charges. There's, you know, obviously, you know, some, some firings that could happen as a, as a result of these, you know, I mean, not to mention just, you know, terminal trauma um, that can be inflicted on, you know, some of the victims of these hazing incidences. So. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's an interesting deal. You know, they, they, there was a couple of years ago, the NCAA sent us all, um, as member institutions, some data around, um, hazing. Um, and I think it, the, the, the survey information came back that there was 74% of all NCAA student athletes at any level had felt some level of hazing. Hmm. Wow. I'm curious if it's something that you, having been an athlete and a coach and an administrator, is it something that in its milder forms, uh, can it be a positive force in terms of the well-being of a team? Are we talking about something that could be a good thing, a helpful thing, that very easily can get out of hand and become destructive rather than constructive? Or, or do you think even that is maybe going a little too far and uh, do you wish that even hazing in its mildest forms did not occur? Yeah, I think I think the the, the hazing that um, that you may be speaking about that may be more positive in nature. I think we that know and see that um, and could and could define it that probably want to just put it in the in the file folder that is team bonding, right? Like that's you know the, the idea of getting together, sharing a laugh with teammates, like. And, and sometimes that can be maybe um, derived as hazing. You know, like you see pretty regularly at this time of year, right, training camps happening in the NFL. What, what's a pretty common thing to happen at, that you hear from, you know, whether it's the Packers or the Bears or whatever, right? The rookies got to get up there and, and sing a song, sing their fight song in front of the team. Or, you know, the, at, the, at the higher levels, the professional levels, it's like, oh, the rookie dinner. You know, they, they take the rookie out and they run up the bar tab and the, and the restaurant tab and the rookie has to pay that, like some of that stuff might be, be derived more around like bonding, you know, like a, a rite of passage, you know, type of thing. But I think what you got to is one thing that is important to make sure you understand, like where it can get out of control is, okay, let's have, you know, a, a freshman, a rookie stand up and sing in front of the team. And then it turns into something else, you know, they're like, okay, well that was, that was okay, but let's make it a little bit more severe now. Like, you know, um, and then that turns into something else. And then before you know it, right, we're getting the things that you read about at Northwestern. I think sometimes that's probably how it got to that. I, mm. I, I find it rare that, that they just all of a sudden start that severe. I think it's like this gradual progression. And so if unless you like kind of have your hands on it right away and say like, yeah, this is fun. Okay, but let's make sure like this is where it stays, mm. right? That it doesn't get any worse than this. And so 
it's all about that awareness and that education of, of what it is that you're doing and, and the impact it could potentially have. Right. The football coach at Northwestern University was fired. I think his last name's Fitzgerald, Fat, Pat Fitzgerald, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and he, uh, I believe to this day, professes to having had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever uh, of, of any hazing activities that were going on. And if I understand correctly, the reason for his dismissal was kind of along the lines of, well, you should have known. Um, I mean, this happened on, on your watch. And I'm sure there are situations and scenarios in which a coach is very much aware of hazing going on and allows it to go on and perhaps even encourages it to go on. Do you have some rough idea of whether or not that is a fairly rare occurrence? I mean, is it more typical that this is instigated by the students themselves and coaches actually just are or choose to be kind of as oblivious as they can be to this activity? Yeah, I I often say, you know, it's really hard for um, a coach, right, who basically, if you think about it truthfully, I mean, there's 24 hours in a day. I always would talk about, you know, the rule of, of 22 and two. You got 22 hours in the day. You got two hours with your coach at practice. And so those other 22 hours, they're, you know, they're in charge of what they do. They've got to make sure that they're eating right, they're sleeping right, they're going to class, they're doing all the things that they need to do, right? And so it, it's pretty hard, you know, for a coach to be in control of, of every decision that a young person makes at 18 to 22 years old. And so, yeah, some of your, uh, your fate is in the hands of those decisions that they make in those off hours. And, yeah, can you, can you accurately say, you know, you should have knowledge of everything that's going on? I, I, I'd like to say that you should, but I get it. You know, when you're talking about a hundred some odd student athletes, when you get into the animals that are like bigger sports, like a football, where you've got that many student athletes and you got these position coaches, you know, the, the, the head coach's job is to just try to, you know, keep everything at kind of a higher level. It, they're probably not getting too granular with everything, but at the same standpoint, like they're also this person that's creating the, the, the requisite culture. And you should have a pulse on, you know, what the team is doing, what's the locker room like, you know, uh, how are they getting along in the residence halls, you know, just the living situation. All of it is important to make sure that you have an understanding of. And I can't, I find it hard to believe that, that at, at any point, if you're not, if you're having conversations at all with members of your team, that, that there wouldn't be some context about some stuff like that happening and that you would immediately want to try to dive into it deeper to say what what, what exactly is going on here right you know this this story out of northwestern is not the first nor the last you know um and and you know when it happened i can tell you that immediately at our next staff meeting i said you know let's make sure that this is a cautionary tale for everybody you know that these these behaviors are, are are not tolerated you know and that you know, educating the student athletes on on understanding what is hazing, you know, hmm. um, and making sure that the student, you know, I would meet regularly with our student athletes to say, this is what hazing looks like. If this is what you feel, here's some ways that you can address it. Um, you know, and and know that you know you, you, we don't live in a in an era where you know you can really escape it. There's just there's more information everywhere. You can't turn a, a blind eye to this stuff. You know, so, right. Or you do so at your peril, that's for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
I am assuming that the typical college and university, and high school for that matter, uh, would typically have some kind of policy in place that prohibits this, although I, I, I guess I would not assume that every single school on the face of the earth has such policies in place, but I would hope that at least most do. So, for instance, what is the official policy of Carthage College? And to any degree, does Carthage officially allow anything that we would call hazing uh, to go on? Yeah, so uh, I, I probably couldn't recite it for you, given <laughs> we, we led the interview with how little time I have here on campus, so I can't say that I know the uh, the handbook through and through on sure. on hazing. But we have to recall that like it's not as if this is exclusive to athletics, that hazing happens in any student group mm. or organization for that matter. I Good mean, point. It could, it, could happen at your, it could happen at your radio station. It could happen at any organization out there, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the dean of students meets with, you know, every single freshman student that comes in and talks about, you know, code of conduct and hazing is a part of that code of conduct. And yes, there are some organizations, fraternities, sororities, Greek life, those things, you know, where that stuff is kind of a prevalent part of their culture and making sure that, you know, that there's a certain standard that's met there that we're not having to deal with, you know, um, issues that could arise, you know, at a national level with a chapter for um, Greek life or things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a there's a policy in place. There's there's obviously, you know, ramifications for it. I, I guess I can't say specifically what that is. I I know that inside athletics, it's a it's it's going to be you know like most things it's program specific, um, but but if the institution has a policy that one will obviously override and and if anything sports programs should think about having something that's a little bit more stringent right on top of whatever it is right you know right well um, which, which they have every opportunity to do of course I mean if for no other reason then I should think one would just want to safeguard the the physical and mental and emotional well being of your own athletes. I mean, so, so they're going to be at their very, very best for the next game or the next match or whatever, and, and not be going into that staggered or injured or traumatized or, or or whatever. So if, if for no other reason than a self-serving reason, it seems like athletic programs should be careful about this. Do you have at least a general sense that progress has been made in terms of hazing. I, I for one, felt like it had been a long time since I'd heard about, since hazing made the headlines the way it did with Northwestern. But then again, I perhaps don't follow this as closely as I should and maybe should not be making blithe assumptions that maybe this is a little less prevalent than it once was. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think you're on to it. I think, if anything, you know, the the awareness around it, right? I mean, we live in an information generation, right? So it's, the, the, you know, the news cycle is out there and, and if it can get reported, it'll get reported. I mean, everyone's, anybody that's got a phone can be a reporter now. So that it's <laughs> kind of hard to escape. If, if something happens, it's going to get reported. Um, and so, you know, you would think if anything, there would be more of them if it was so prevalent. Um, and so my, my assumption is that, yeah, that this stuff is, you know, being dealt with, um, you know, swiftly, people are learning it. Um, I think our younger generation is less tolerant of these types of things. You know, um, you know, they're they're not they're not uh, you know they're 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 less tolerant around social injustice. You know, I mean, there's just 
there's so many things that this generation is not tolerating that I think previous generations likely did because it was just the way things used to be, right? Um, you know, oh, it's a tradition that you have to do this. Well, who says so? You know right. what I mean? Like, that, that, that's not right. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, I think there's 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 more opportunity for kids to feel like they're, they can make their voice heard. They can stand up and say, I don't believe in that, you know, and, and I think that that's the right way it should be. And I think overall, like, I just have to, like, I always just shake my head when I see these things and hear these things because I often wonder to myself, like, like, when does anybody think that that's actually any fun? Like, right. you, you need to find other alternative measures to, like, get your team together and have fun than doing the things that you've been reading about when it comes to, like, some of these hazing incidences, you know? It's like, Absolutely. I mean, you, you it, know, like, it, what, it, like if this is what they want to do with their free time, you got to find something to do constructively with them. Absolutely, yeah. It's hard to believe that someone would willingly subject themselves to enduring this, and and it's also a little hard to imagine anybody finding pleasure in watching your teammates subjected to this and uh and uh, yes let's let's hope that progress has been made and let's hope this story out of northwestern is one more cautionary tale that that helps us along that learning curve ryan kane athletic director director at carthage college thanks for making time for this conversation i appreciate it and i look forward to seeing you soon Oh, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it as well. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. I think it's fair to say that most books about professional sports and professional athletes tend to focus on the superstars who achieve exceptional success. The Muhammad Ali's, the Lou Gehrig's, the LeBron James's. It's not so often that books get written about athletes who struggle to succeed, who are hanging on by their fingertips, who are dealing with frustration upon frustration, perhaps never fulfilling their early promise, or just struggling right from the outset to be part of a professional sport that they really love. But sometimes those stories can be the most compelling. Certainly that's the case with a brand new book by best-selling author Tim Brown, called The Tau of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game. In this book, Tim Brown chronicles the story of backup catchers in professional baseball, and one backup catcher in particular, someone who will have a familiar name for those who have followed the Milwaukee Brewers in recent years. His name, Eric Kratz. He was a backup catcher for the Brewers, during their 2018 postseason run, and he achieved some remarkable success. And it was really the first glory he had tasted after 17 years toiling in the major leagues as a backup. The story of Eric Kratz and other backup catchers is told so well in this book by Tim Brown. And you might know Tim Brown's name already, uh, because of two previous bestsellers that he has written, The Phenomenon and Imperfect. He is an award-winning writer, has covered baseball for more than three decades. And again, this most recent book, published by 12, is called The Tau of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game. I wonder if we could begin by having you talk about how this particular topic occurred to you. Uh, I mean, I don't 
think anyone has ever written a book quite like it. And this is one of those stories that uh, kind of plays out in kind of the obscure corners of Major League Baseball. Um, how did this first occur to you, that there was going to be an interesting book here? Well, I think the germ of the idea might be 30 years old, Greg. Um, I've been covering baseball for that long. And when you start covering Major League Baseball, it all seems a little bit foreign. You think you know the game, but then you realize you need to know the people. That, that this this is a very it becomes a very sort of human experience about it's not about the final score it's about the guys endeavoring to get to that final score and who those guys are and what they're all about and when I first started walking into major league clubhouses the best guy in that clubhouse in terms of being friendly and humble and willing to educate you were always the backup catchers. And I, I recognized right away that they had a perspective on the game and on life that was a little bit different than their teammates. And so along the years, um, I would routinely find myself in the corner of the clubhouse talking to backup catchers. I felt like uh, they were they were just felt like real human beings. And this really exploded for me in late in the summer of 2018 and into the fall of 2018 in Milwaukee, watching the love affair between the people, the fans, baseball fans in Milwaukee and this journeyman backup catcher named Eric Kratz. Uh, they'd even come to name the month Kratztober. <laughs> and, it was this sort of wonderful celebration of a guy who had given most of his life to a game that didn't always love him back. And so when Eric and I became acquainted, I thought that he could serve his experiences, his journey could serve as the spine of a book about all the backup catchers, about the culture of backup catchers, and then about how that sort of applies to real life. You know, as uh, what I mentioned in the book is that while baseball is not life, baseball is a really good place to practice life. And I think nobody does it more often and, and to, with, with greater aplomb than a backup catcher. Hmm. I think one thing that is interesting about the concept of the book uh, is that although there does seem to be something really interesting that ties all backup uh, catchers together, I mean, some qualities that just about all of them seem to share. I mean, I'm sure there's a surly backup catcher here and there, but I mean, by and large, I think <laughs> your generality, your, the generality you're making here, I think, uh, is, is a very fair one. But you also spell out in the introduction to the book how sometimes the road <laughs> that takes them to that sort of that kind of lower echelon of, of Major League Baseball can play out really, really differently. And, and sometimes it is some, someone who once was of the first rank and has declined and someone others have climbed from the bottom and never quite made it to the very, very top. And then there's a whole lot of backup catchers where that's just kind of always where they were. 
I mean, fr- from the very, very outset, even in high school, that might be where they were sort of relegated uh, in the game of baseball. I think that's really an intriguing thing to, 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 to think about. Yeah, you know, there is a conversation in the book uh, about whether backup catchers as a concept are born or bred. Do you start as a backup catcher and attain these qualities, um, these virtues of, of teamwork, of being present for the guy next to you, uh, of, of giving yourself to the game versus expecting something from the game? Uh, or were you this virtuous sort of person or someone who tried to be like, you know, it's never perfect and therefore became a backup catcher Uh, because, you know, the one thing they all have in common is they're not very good hitters. Now, at some point in their lives, someone decided they were not going to be good enough to be a major league hitter. And therefore the reps dried up, the innings dried up, and they're sort of cast into this role, which then leads to the fact that you're not a very good hitter. You know, it's sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Without all those reps, you become sort of a not a very good hitter. So you have to acquire all of these other uh, attributes that will allow you to sort of survive in the game. You know, when, when GMs go looking for backup catchers, they are the one position on a 26-man roster. There are 25 guys who fit into this analytical model that you and I both have seen a lot of. And one guy exists outside of it, and that's the guy who won't give the manager a hard time about playing time, who will be a good teammate, who will be a father figure, a big brother, a drinking buddy, a priest, a therapist, whatever you need out of him, and sort of contributes to the game in the 21 hours around the game. Hmm. You write at one point, the backup catcher is most often the guy who was not quite good enough to be the starting catcher, but there are lots of those. The minor leagues are full of those. So are construction sites and insurance firms and high school coaching staffs and wherever glory days are warmed and served with cold beer. He is then also the guy who can be trusted with the fragile parts of a team, a season, and a culture. When it is darkest, he laughs. When it is easiest, he shows up an hour earlier. When the winds come and the championships follow, he stands to the side. When the season is lost and the sun seems two feet closer than it should be and nobody really wants to be doing this, he plays more. I mean, there are a lot of different ways in which uh, the backup catcher plays an intriguing role. But something else that I think you also talk about so poignantly in your book is about the arrivals and the departures. I mean, uh, the times when you are driving uh, to a new city and a new assignment and those times when you are driving away from that city when they have told you it's no longer time to be there. And I really appreciate you kind of sharing with us what ends up being the rhythm of, of, of a career like that of, of uh, Eric Kratz. And, of course, for him, it played out again and again over the course of nearly two decades. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is, you know, we're, we're all on these unique journeys. And what 
becomes important is who we choose to be on those journeys, right? These guys, their hearts are broken over and over and over again. And, and I think we tend to view that as, oh, Eric Kratz is here. Oh, I, I didn't see that coming. Or, oh, Eric Kratz is gone. I guess I don't have to think about him anymore. Uh, but, you know, with Eric was married at a young age. His wife, Sarah, had three children. Uh, and this was all part of their story is this uh, attempt to keep the family close and tight. And, and when you're moving around, when you're playing 19 professional seasons, with more than a dozen different franchises and being a part of 120 some different transactions, what that does to you and that <clears throat> what it what it turns into is how dedicated are you? How real does this dream still feel to you? And are you willing to continue to work for what is going to turn out to be sort of crumbs of that original dream? But is it going to is it going to be good enough for you today? And are you going to do your job today? Hmm. We're speaking with Tim Brown about his latest book, The Tao of the Backup Catcher, Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game. It's an examination of the backup catcher, the second and third string catcher uh, on, on the typical Major League Baseball team and the sort of role or roles which they play. And also the, uh, the, the gauntlet that is involved in that kind of career. You tell us the story of how Eric Kratz first became a catcher. It was sort of uh, something asked of him, and being a consummate team player, uh, he was willing to do this, uh, even though it wasn't what he necessarily had in mind for himself. Uh, explain to our listeners the first time he uh, undertook the assignment of catcher. <laughs> well, so you know, it's, it's amazing. Something, a, a massive percentage of, of big league catchers uh, started out when they were in high school, even, uh, even some in college were shortstops and pitchers and first basemen. And for some reason or another, they sort of migrated into that catcher position. And oftentimes when you become a catcher at a younger age, it's because, you know, who do we stick a catcher? It's the big Husky kid who can't move around particularly well anywhere else on the field. So you stick him back there and you've got a little batting cage around him. So the ball's not going to get too far away from him. Um, but you know what? One summer day, uh, Jimmy, the catcher's family goes to the shore on vacation or Andy, the catcher walks through a sliding glass door and can't play for a while. Uh, in Eric's case, um, you know, kid went on vacation and they had a pitcher who, threw a little bit too hard for everybody else. So you reach for one of the better athletes on the field. Eric at the time was a shortstop, a big shortstop. And they brought him in and, you know, he, he sort of hung in there on it. I, I think sort of the, one of the things that really struck me as funny was it was uh, so out of the blue for him that he did not own or possess a protective cup. His father played men's league hockey. His father had a cup when he played men's league hockey. So he went to the car, got his man-sized cup out of the car, handed it to his 11-year-old son, and watched him battle 
through that for three hours. Uh, but that's, these are this you know, every guy has a story about how he got to be a catcher. Very few of them showed up on the very first day. One of the only ones, John Flaherty, who was a number one catcher for a number one, a uh, number of years and ended up being a backup catcher toward the end of his career with the Yankees. One of the few guys who the first, he was a very shy kid in New Jersey and when the coach asked everybody what position they wanted to play, John Flaherty, being this such a shy kid, thought, I'm going to go there where I can put a mask on and no one can see me, and, and I'll do that. So he, he was one of the few who actually was a catcher basically out of the baseball womb. Hmm. Interesting. I, I love how you tell the story of, of, of Eric a few years after that Little League experience of first becoming a catcher uh, at 16 years old um, when essentially the coach was seeing who might be willing to take on that position, and he raised his hand. You write, at 16, he raised a fresh, unbent, unmarked hand. He was a catcher. And for however long that lasted, that was to be spent in the scuff between batter's boxes, squatting between home plate and a stooped umpire, where there was just enough room for a man and his next thought, and in the dirt, always in the dirt. (laughs) I don't think a lot of us uh, think about, in a sense, that proximity to the dirt, (laughs) which is part of the reality of a catcher. And, of course, beyond that is also the stance of a catcher for such long periods of time uh, in, in, in a game, uh, it is brutal in terms of, the, of, of, of what it demands uh, from the human body and, in a sense, demanding things that are not necessarily natural uh, for, for, for the typical human being. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which it is not a difficult, uh, it is a difficult position to play. It's a really hard job, Greg. And I think, you know, we can all appreciate it. We've seen enough of it where the guys are catching foul tips and spiked fastballs. And, you know, up until recent years, runners coming in from third base, you know, looking to take your head off. Uh, what, one of, there's, a, there's a piece in the book about uh, a catcher named Tony Walters, who was a back and he was actually a middle infielder in the mi- the minor leagues before he changed over to catcher and we uh had a long conversation about backing up first base and i always thought this was the wildest thing about baseball right you're 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 the catcher you got to take care of the pitcher you got the ball being flung at you all the time you got a guy with a stick standing right next to you all matter of bad things can happen you're working your butt off you're, by the way, you're also getting four or five at-bats, and you may be running the bases as well. And you're going to have to wear all this gear, and you're going to sweat, and you're going to get dirt in your throat. And, oh, by the way, the one other thing we're going to need you to do is if there's a ground ball to the left side of the infield, we're going to need you to run down and back up first base. It always just amazed me that, that, that this guy, this was his duty. Um, and the reason that I was talking to Tony Walters about it is because one day as a Colorado Rockies uh, catcher in the ninth inning, he backed up first base on a bad throw and scooped up a wayward throw and threw out Matt Kemp at first base. 
And, you know, <laughs> when I asked him about it, he thought, you know, I asked him, how many times have you done that? And he said, I don't know, a million. I said, how many times has it worked out? And he said, that was the one. And I think, you know, that's sort of the thing about catchers and, and backup catchers is all of this effort, every ounce of strength and endurance that you have, and every once in a while it pays off. And, it, and it, what he said to me was, I'm just glad I did it again because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to sleep last night. And I, I just thought that was a really sort of powerful message about, you know, again, it's not just about baseball. It's about life. You do these things uh, because that's what's expected of you. Right. And I think one thing we haven't really talked about in terms of the reality of being a second string or even third string catcher on a team is that that so often means that you will not play. And that's one of the most poignant facets of this book. And time and time again, that kind of gets explored, that, that notion of being ready to play, yet not playing. I mean, in a sense, warming the bench. And the way in which these guys have to kind of come to terms with that really sad, frustrating reality is one of the biggest stories here. Yeah, again, I mean, I think there's sort of uh, a couple elements to that where uh, you become very locked in to trying to win baseball games in the 21 hours around the games, right? Um, and I think that's like a really critical element to this. And again, why, how a backup catcher adds value um, to a team when, you know, you, that can't be quantified, Um and I think that part is really critical. And also this this notion of in those three hours, you're standing next to the manager or you're sitting next to the pitching coach or you're watching the game or you're talking to the pitcher between innings or you're in the bullpen helping to warm up relievers. And I don't think as a result it should be a big surprise that currently – 14 of the 30 major league managers served all or parts of their careers as backup catchers because they ha are, have become so in tune with the game, so in tune with what it takes to win games or motivate players or be there for players uh, that they just naturally fall into these leadership positions. I want to be sure before we f uh, run out of time to talk about this matter of, of, of Eric Kratz and the love affair that sprang up between him and Milwaukee and the Milwaukee Brewers uh, in this extraordinary uh, postseason of, of 2018. Uh, and one of the things that was most extraordinary about what happened is when it happened in Eric Kratz's team, a, a career. This was 17 seasons after he was first drafted. And a lot had happened to him, and so much of it was frustrating. And then all kinds of things managed to sort of come together. Explain what happened <laughs> and how it happened, oh. that, that, he would, <laughs> that he would enjoy some really sweet success at this point in his long career. Well, so in in May of two thousand, late May of two thousand eighteen, uh, the Brewers needed a backup catcher. 
um, they had a catcher injured, and they turned to the Yankees, who had a veteran guy in AAA that they thought could at least chew up some innings, handle some pitchers, and get them through this sort of dry period at catcher. Um, and they traded for Eric Kratz for a player to be named later. And Eric Kratz comes over to the Brewers and grinds away and grinds away, and he's sharing the position with Manny Pena at the time. Um, but as the season went along, Eric Kratz started to get hot. You know, uh, for a guy who really had struggled at the plate at the big league level for a long time, um, you know, his time had come at 38 years old. And by middle of August into September, Brewers go to the playoffs. Eric Kratz is playing great. And along comes the division series against the Rockies. And Craig Council goes with the hot guy at catcher. And Eric Kratz hits 625 in the postseason. And they knock off the Rockies. Uh, and the Brewers then played to the game seven of the NLCS against the powerhouse Dodger team um, had every chance to win uh, that series as well. But I think what I was sort of drawn to so much was how much Milwaukee reminded me of Eric Kratz and Eric Kratz reminded me of Milwaukee. Um, you know, he was sort of a smaller market and perhaps overlooked at times. And yet, there was something about the Milwaukee Brewers as a franchise that uh, allowed you to believe in them. Um, and I feel like Eric Kratz was sort of a similar guy. And I remember going into Milwaukee for uh, that playoff series. I even had a George Webb hamburger while I was there. Mm. And just absolutely uh, the, the fact that people were calling it Kratz-tober and I, I thought, you know, this is what happens when you keep going, mm. when you you get to your, your journey and you've decided you're going to, wherever that journey leads you, you're decided you're going to be a, a, a type of person on that journey. You get to choose. And he chose across all of this, these difficult times. And, and Greg, he raged against it very often. He wanted to quit at times. Uh but all those choices along the way got him to Milwaukee in that October of 2018 to have this amazing run. And it becomes sort of the climactic chapter of this book as well as, uh, you know, you keep getting after it and, and maybe the world finds you or, or a team finds you or a moment finds you and, and you produce. And it becomes uh, sort of the highlight of your professional career and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, your life. And one of the feel-good stories in all of sports, you write at one point, Milwaukee smiled with him because they knew who Eric Kratz was almost as much as Eric Kratz knew who Eric Kratz was, a guy in search of a chance who had earned a hundred of them but would take the one that came along, the only one like it. He possessed a certain Midwestern sensibility, which is difficult to define, but he was a big old fella and played hard and smiled a lot. At the end of his 17th summer of professional baseball, Kratz reminded them all that the journey doesn't stop if you don't. Uh, 
And then three months later, he was traded. Right, exactly. <laughs> although I remember, so he uh, continued. although I know he, he really appreciated the fact that the Brewers were very, very upfront. They were open and professional in the way that they treated him, kept him in the loop. And, and of course, many, many times uh, those kind of trades would happen in, in ways that were, were much more brutal and inhumane. So, uh, so Milwaukee tried to treat him well to the end. And, of course, he enjoys uh, tremendous success in a checkered period with the New York Yankees, a team that takes him and dumps him and takes him and dumps him and takes him and dumps him. And uh, and that story in and of itself is a fascinating one that we can read as well. We do have to take a couple minutes to talk about, in some respects, someone who is the MVP in this story, and that is his uh, faithful, long-suffering wife. Tell us uh, about Sarah Kratz and the extraordinarily important role that she played in making all of this possible. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought this up, Greg, because, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure there's no book without Eric Kratz. And I'm positive there's no Eric Kratz without Sarah. Um, Sarah is his wife. And... <clears throat> They were married uh, shortly after they, they met in college and married shortly after. And, you know, they, they're a very spiritual family. They were Mennonites, uh, went to Eastern Mennonite University. And uh, it was very important that they stay together. It, it could be, you know, this job can be brutal on a family. And they knew that. And so... As Eric went, so did Sarah, and then so did Sarah and Braden, and Sarah and Braden and Ethan, and then Sarah and Braden and Ethan and Avery. They had three kids, and she would drive. She would pack their car with all their stuff and drive to wherever he was going next and show up, and they would get a little apartment, and she would homeschool the kids. She'd find a library. She'd make ends meet, figure it out. Um, and she was absolutely relentless. I, I think uh, she became uh, his conscience and reminded often that uh, to remember the journey, to to enjoy the days, to uh, to keep going. You know, this is this is the thing. This is what we all need, right? We need someone telling us in our our difficult moments that it's okay. Keep going. I'm with you. And that's what she provided and still provides to this day. And one of the things I really appreciate is in a, in a chapter called Echoes of Velcro, you kind of take us inside the reality of when you are the wife and mom, what you have to deal with in this vagabond existence. In fact, uh, you have us, we, we, you, you tell us about uh, all of the library cards that she assembled, uh, accumulated over the course of many years from all kinds of different cities and, and would hold on to them because you would never know when that might be where we're headed next. And of course I need, (laughs) I need, I need a library card to take my kids there and so on. And just, so this pile of library cards in her possession is in a sense, kind of an interesting symbol of what it is like to be, uh, the wife of somebody who is uh, 
having this kind of vagabond career in Major League Baseball. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, and sort of the last sort of bit about this is that she'd actually taken to uh, putting all their belongings in boxes and numbering the boxes. And so when it was time to go somewhere cold, she knew to get box 23 and 28 and 29, and they'd ship that. And then when they went somewhere warm, they knew four, seven, and twelve had the warm or the the cooler clothing, and they'd ship those. She was amazing. She, you know, she had maps and 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 graphs and everything else. Just an amazing woman, and she's really one of the heroes of this story. Absolutely, as you say in the acknowledgments, uh, we could have done the whole book about Sarah Kratz. She is every proud mom and dad, every strong and encouraging mentor, every member of the pit crew, and every tough coach and loving friend rolled into one. There was no book without the ball player. I don't know if there's a ball player without Sarah. The book is so wonderful, and again, it's titled The Tao of the Backup Catcher Playing Baseball for the Love of the Game, written by New York Times bestselling author Tim Brown. The book is published by Twelve. Tim Brown, you've done it again. You've given the world yet another fabulous baseball book. <laughs> and I am so glad well, that we got to talk about it today. Thank you so much, and best wishes to you. Thanks, Mel. That was really great. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you.